listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to transhumanists Max Moore and Natasha Vita Moore. I think people are asking the question, what are we going to become? What does it mean to be human? The basic idea of morphological freedom is that we have a right to choose to modify ourselves in whichever ways we choose. Max and Natasha discuss their contributions to the field of transhumanism, the philosophical concept of morphological freedom, and how we can work to leverage advanced technology for human enhancement. This episode was recorded on location at the offices of Futurism.com in New York City. Transhumanism is a tested subject matter, but you guys really and truly understand the history of transhumanism. And most people want to ask you about the future. What I want to ask you about is the past. So where did this all begin? I look at it as having had its roots in Alighieri Dante's poetry when he wrote about transhumanar, which is Italian means to transform. Basically, you could identify that as a human condition. Going forward to T.S. Eliot's Cocktail Party, a Pulitzer Prize play, where it discusses transhumanized as a relationship situation, more psychological a conflict between thinking modalities. And then into Huxley, who wrote a chapter on transhumanism in uh, New Bottles for New Wines. I believe it was. The bottom line is the word transhuman has a history across time and across culture. And it simply means transformation or transitional. If you look through philosophy, it'll have a different terminology. And, and Max is the best at that as a philosopher and author of the philosophy. For myself, the transhuman, when I wrote the manifesto in 1983, it was about overcoming human limitations, biological limitations, disease and aging and intellectual inabilities, memory conflicts and certain levels of sadness and a need for a more humane society. So that's the transhuman. I'll pass it on to Max to get into the philosophical history. You wrote these works back in the, in the mid 80s. I mean, how did you come to this topic of transhumanism? It's a really tough question about the roots of transhumanism because of the, the ones I can actually remember and, and cite as influences on me. And then, of course, there's the, the deeper history, which probably has a peripheral influence. But you can go back to the alchemists, of course, and look at the core dreams. They didn't have the technology, but they had the right ideas of overcoming aging, of transforming the elements of flight and so on. So there's been this kind of drive for overcoming limits through history. As far back as I can think in my, my own personal history to when I was like a child, I've always been you know, wondering why are we limited? Why can't we get off this planet? I watched the Apollo 11 landing when I was five years old and watched every moon landing since. And I thought... Yes, why can't we, why are we limited to this gravity well? And then by the time I was in my early teens, I'm not sure how, but I got into life extension, uh, not just health and vitamins, I was starting to take those, but actual life extension before I stopped even growing. So I don't, not quite sure where that came from. It wasn't from my environment. Then I, I don't know, I came across Robert Anton Wilson, I mean, uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, you know, Methuselah's Children and some of his books, which had very long lived people. A lot of the early works, I saw Kent had a book, The Life Extension Revolution in 82, and there's Dope Person and Sandy Shaw. So I'm not really sure what caused it, but it had the common theme, which led to X magazine of overcoming limits and the fundamental one, of course, being lifespan, but also getting off the planet. So it's it's almost like there's a gene for it. And I've kind of seen this in other people. Some people, you can talk to them for hours and they just won't get it at all. Other people will just say, 
oh, you know, I get it now. And, and it's like, it's almost like there's a gene for this, a neophilio gene or something. And I seem to have that. And it's actually very hard to say exactly how <laughs> how this happened. What was happening culturally back in the, the 80s that, that made you write these works and, and become interested in this field of transhumanism? Was there something very unique about the environments that you guys were circling in? Yes. Well, we were in two totally separate environments at that time. I was in Telluride, Colorado, and involved in the film industry. I was living in Japan and, and performing there and very excited about my career as a performer, an artist, a narrator, etc. The reason why I became interested in life extension, which is the core of transhumanism, is because I became very ill. I was hospitalized. I told I might die. I was hemorrhaging to death and literally physically going. At that time, I I hadn't thought about life extension. I then started thinking about the vulnerability of the human body, the inflexibility of it, the shelf life of it, the disease of aging, and that the suffering that the humans have done just to stay alive and ward off any type of disease. So that really turned my life around. When I returned to the United States, I started studying everything I could about the technology of life extension, the science, evidence-based science, and ethical technology. And I want to make that clear because there is a lot of pseudoscience out there. And there's a lot of views that you can think you can live forever and you will. And this term immortality has gotten some bad bandwidth recently. But the bottom line is we cannot survive without certain technologies, genetic engineering, stem cells, um, nanomedicine, artificial intelligence, and to mitigate the onslaught of aging and disease. But the 1980s for me were a very fun-filled time of getting into electronic arts and video and multimedia I had a TV show in Los Angeles on the future. It was called Transhuman Transcentury Update, and I would interview people about the future. So that's my background in becoming interested in the future, having firsthand experience, having that gene that, that Max, whatever it is that you just go, oh, wait a minute, things are changing. And perhaps I was ahead of the curve because now I look where the ideas we talked about back then are now getting more bandwidth and mainstream. I can think of two other kind of important influxes, I suppose. Like I said, it's almost like I have a gene, which I'm kind of being mostly flippant about, but I'm not, maybe, I, maybe I do. But there's also a, a very clear drive in me to, you know, to be dissatisfied with human limits. And I spent actually the years from about 11 years old to 14 exploring basically the paranormal and the occult, partly because my, my older brother left these books around and I started reading them and tried out all these different things from dowsing to astral projection to Rosicrucians, you name it, the Kabbalah. And unfortunately, none of it worked. And I guess I, I also you know, like superhero comics and I thought, well, why can't we be superhuman? This stuff isn't working. So, well, maybe technology and science is the way to go. And at that time, I don't know, it to be late 70s, early 80s, Omni magazine got going and then they had an offshoot called Future, I think it was called Future Life magazine. And it had uh, actually had Robert Anton Wilson writing about physical immortality or life extension and space colonization, all these kinds of things. So then I started realizing, oh, there are actually more people interested in this. And I think the ideas started to form and come together. And only later on with my philosophical work that I sort of conceptualized that more concretely. It's interesting because 
was around that time too, Mondo 2000, and some of these other, the, the cyberpunks through science fiction were getting a lot of headway. But it was almost contrary to the transhumanist perspective because that was largely based on a cyborg, which is not a human evolution or a human transformation. It's just like adding machines to your to the body as originally defined by um, Nathan Klein and, and Manfred Klein. That was the reason for a cyborg to go out into space like a spacesuit. But the term really caught on within science fiction, especially within the film industry as well. And it came out as a terminator and something dangerous and scary and didn't have any humaneness, any a level of humanity within the term cyborg. And then in academics, we know the postmodernists took it over. The uh, postmodernists really, in, especially in the philosophical departments, the humanities, feminism studies, gay uh, gender studies, etc., really pushed the notion of the cyborg and fought the notion of the transhuman because, and I finally figured it out when I was writing my, my dissertation, they didn't have the scientific knowledge or technological prowess to be able to understand what was really happening behind the scenes as far as the evolution of the human with technology. Yeah, this concept of the cyborg causes a lot of trouble. But generally, cyborgs, like the Terminator, are generally subhuman. I mean, they can be very physically powerful, but they're very narrow. You know, they have a very narrow focus, punch and destroy, react in certain ways. So that's why we really don't like to use that term. There's actually nothing really wrong with the term inherently, but it's got this very bad connotation now of being controlled by the outside and programmed. And that's, of course, the very opposite of transhumanism, which is all about morphological freedom, psychological freedom, choosing who you want to become. Let's talk a little bit about morphological freedom, because that was the essay that really helped to define what the trajectory is for how we want to change and extend ourselves. I mean, could you explain what morphological freedom is? Yeah, I think I first used the term, at least that I can remember, at the Extro 3 conference where I gave a talk on this. It's really you know, a typical kind of ponderous philosopher's term, I suppose. But the idea was really to encapsulate all these different ideas of, of shaping ourselves. And Natasha's written about that from her own perspective. But to create ourselves, I mean, you can go back to, obviously, Friedrich Nietzsche, and he talked about uh, choosing oneself, and other people have to but he didn't have the technology. So the basic idea of, of morphological freedom is that we have a right, or we should have a right asserted to choose to modify ourselves in what, whichever ways we choose. Uh, now, I would choose to do it in ways that make me better, you know, smarter, more intelligent, kinder, more thoughtful, have better foresight, and so on. Other people might choose other things, and there could be some you know, legitimate legal arguments as to what you can and cannot do. For instance, in the blind community, there's this whole blind pride thing where they actually want to make their children blind who wouldn't otherwise be. Now, that gets into some tricky areas. But as long as we're talking about increasing children's capabilities in our own, that's really what it is, the freedom, both politically and with the technology, to choose who you are physically, intellectually, cognitively, emotionally. And you took that idea, Natasha, and you, you turned that into these wonderful art pieces with primo post-human. You, you really explored what the possibilities of morphological freedom could actually look like. The way I, I saw it, that was in 1996, so it seems like eons ago. I don't even do any artistic endeavors. Maybe my life has become my art. I don't know. But with primo post-human, the idea was to design a whole body prosthetic as a prototype for the future designed with the emerging and speculative technologies and ponderings of science in reversing and mitigating aging, etc. But using nanomedicine, before the term nanomedicine was even you know, brought up, outside of Robert Friedis, who wrote the book Nanomedicine, and um, a lot of the ideas of maybe that 
CRISPR has now <clears throat> with genetic engineering. But it wasn't on, only that. It was about encryption because in the early 1990s, uh, we talked about on the Extra B Transhumanist email list, it was the first email list on the internet, on the future, and that was really exciting. Encryption was something important. And so Bitcoin was discussed or cryptocurrency, um, taking a look at maybe blockchain. All these ideas originated from the purveyors of that knowledge who have uh, since been the um, the early adapters and entrepreneurs. The idea of prima posthuman was that we could have an alternative body that we could be interchangeable with biology. It wouldn't have to be exclusively technological. It could be semi-technological, semi-biological. One thing that's very important for everyone to know, and, and here is where I think that the news coverage since the 1980s and covering transhumanism through the 1990s has gotten it a little bit wrong. Morphological freedom means that while you may have the right to your body and to morph as you choose, a person also equally has a right never to be coerced to enhance. And that's very important because the idea that maybe transhumanists think that we should be perfect, whatever perfection is. I have no interest in perfection. I think it's, it's a, a wasted space because once you've reached perfection, there's no place else to go. The idea that there'll be the haves and the have-nots, the elitists, those who have morphological freedom or the money to do it, and though everyone else will be an other, someone who's disregarded, is a ridiculous notion. And I think that's very obvious through the world we live in, the monetary economy economic system we live in. And I think Max could explain, it's not just capitalism, but competition in, in, within products and the marketplace drives the price down so that just about everyone today has a smartphone. But early on, only the elite, the rich will have smartphones. I think it is very important to stress that, that aspect of morphological freedom, the, basically the negative right not to be coerced. So mm -hmm. if the government decides, oh yeah, it'd be good if people were much more intelligent and they could be more productive and pay more taxes by doing so. So we're going to require everybody to get this upgrade. Uh, not according to morphological freedom. That says you have the right to decide. We don't want people deciding what kind of behaviors we should have or change our emotional responses. Of course, you know, you've got the, the classic works of Soma, people being pacified, basically. We don't want that. We want people to choose what kind of modifications. For instance, here's a good one. What about, you know, there's this, this long-running kind of cliche, which I'm not sure how true it is, but that Great artists are often a little bit mad. I don't. I'm not actually convinced. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that's true. But maybe in some cases there is a trade-off. Maybe you'd have to sort of decide. Okay, am I willing to put up with a little bit of uh, schizophrenia or your know, mental pain to produce this kind of work or not? I actually tend to think the opposite is probably true more often. Actually, the better mental health you're in, the more freedom you have to create. But there might be people in that condition, and they would choose. The choice shouldn't be made for them, as long as they're not choosing a state that's a danger to others. Obviously, like a homicidal range. I think there was a, a, a novel follow-up to Blade Runner, sort of a sequel to Blade Runner, in which the character has his amygdala wired kind of backwards, so the more danger he, he's in, the better he feels. So, you know, he's going on killing rampages and, and endangering himself and it just feels better and better. That is probably something I would say, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't allow that particular modification it's too dangerous. Let's stick on the topic of morphological freedom, because I think the interesting thing about that 1989 essay is that it seems all about being stronger, better, faster, 
more enhanced. I wonder as we enter the 21st century, whether morphological freedom just needs to be about enhancement, whether it can be about difference. So we have these modern 21st century cyborgs, folks like Neil Harbisson, who's a colorblind artist, which makes the idea of his antenna that allows him to hear color a little bit more challenging because arguably it is an enhancement. But for him, he sees it as a form of difference. He makes that choice himself to have that antenna. It doesn't necessarily enhance him or make him better. It just makes him different. And I wonder in the, in the environment and the world in which we're in right now about how we think about our own bodies and our own identity, whether we need a revival of the idea of morphological freedom, not just to be about being better or faster or stronger, but being allowed to be differentiated yeah, in whatever, whatever way we see fit. Yeah, I mean, the reason why there's an emphasis on augmentation was because nobody else was was emphasizing that aspect. So everybody <laughs> agrees that you should better you know, help with your color blindness or you know, something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's very inclusive. Certainly, obviously, it includes, and we have transhumanism, it's funny now, we have transgenderism, but it includes that. If you want to change your gender, that's part of morphological freedom. You should have the freedom to do that. How far do we allow morphological freedom to go? If so, if people decided that they wanted to become something other than the body, should we have some form of limitation? What you're getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're getting at maybe the psychology of identity, what it means to be a person or personhood, or what is agency, <laughs> and could agency be something other than biological? And would that be morphological freedom if I wanted to become maybe this microphone? Would that would I have that right to be no, this that, microphone? That's an extreme case, but can I change myself biologically to also be that? And I just wonder if, if morphological freedom is, is going to be a very useful topic as we enter these new times of, of I think identity so. politics. Yes, I wonder I, if we need a, a revival and a re a re-look at morphological freedom as a as a very egalitarian, very useful term. And I think it's important to distinguish between the idea that you can just declare yourself to be something like as, as one of the Monty Python crew annoyed at the BBC's political correctness recently said, he uh, it, was, it was the, the American one, what's his name, uh, Terry Gilliam. He said, okay, so the, the BBC said, we, ha- we have this new comedy troupe. They want to all be boys from, you know, Oxford and Cambridge University. So John Cleese said something snarky. And then uh, the other guy said, okay, I declare myself to be a black lesbian woman in transition then. Ah, okay. So there is this kind of ridiculous thing that, you know, there are some good critics of where you just declare yourself to be a certain kind of person. To me, that's just, that's just delusional. But if your goal is to, is to become that and to actually make use of real technologies, like obviously hormone therapy treatments and maybe in the future much some more sophisticated changes in the brain structure, that's that's another matter. That's something that actually is workable. I think there is a level of delusion where you just declare, I'm going to be a dolphin. There's actually a guy who, like in his 50s, he lives as an eight-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Now to me, that that's, okay, that's his choice. If people if you find people that want to put up with them to do that, okay. But I don't see that as, a, as the same kind of thing that we're talking about here. You know, when you have a... a, a gender change, you go through psychological treatment. You have to you know, pass certain levels of understanding of what the ramifications will be or could be. So I think that probably there will, there will be a, a new field in psychology that deals with agency and different levels of psychosis and identity on transference. And also like there is body dysmorphia. There could be psychological dysmorphia on different levels of lack of understanding. And that's why I think 
along with morphological freedom, something that is uh, totally crucial to us right now is artificial intelligence. And using narrow AI in just about everything that we do today, narrow AI is here, it's all around us, but we don't think of it as having agency or being something that is really changing us. However, right around the corner, a stronger AI or artificial general intelligence will be used to augment our cognitive processes to help us carve new neural pathways in perhaps being more humane, being more empathic, being more kinder people, and to actually develop the essence of being humane, which is very much missing from a large section of humanity. We call ourselves humans, but where is our level of humaneness? I think that's something that will be very important as we look at using technologies within morphological freedom, especially ones that will help our cognitive properties and help us actually get beyond some of our maybe depressions or strains and stresses and traumas in life. The way you kind of phrased morphological freedom a little while ago is to remember it's like the $6 million man. Yes, we have the technology. We can make you faster, <laughs> better, stronger. But it is, again, apart from what we've just been talking about, about you know other kinds of changes, it can also mean making the best of who you are right now because before we make too many wild changes we might first of all want to improve the way we function as we are i was talking last night about this topic and this is the idea of the kind of the metabrain idea that right now the way we evolved we really don't understand what the heck we're doing what our motivations are why we get in certain moods because we don't have very good access from the cortical areas down into the the emotional regions we've just been programmed you know tiger running at me get frightened, move. Um, we're not very good at dealing with complexity. We don't have many pathways going in the other direction. And I mentioned a, a book by uh, Joseph Ledoux, the neuroscientist called The Emotional Brain, where he talks about that. So before you know, making radical changes to yourself, you might first of all want to make the best of yourself, you know, really learn how to understand yourself. And people could say, well, you can meditate. Well, yeah, you can, but there's limits to that because you just don't have the neural pathways that are really going to give you all the information you need. So it's not either or, but uh, you can do both. So think that we might have have this possibility of morphological freedom seems to conflate biological evolution with cultural evolution. Cultural evolution is happening at a certain speed, but biological evolution takes multiple generations. It feels like we arrived at one point in time, we've got a body for 60 to 120 years, and there is a degree of frustration that these transhumanists who advocate these massive sort of radical transformations the body have, you know, they see cultural evolution, they go, God, all these things travel at the speed of light. Why can't we upgrade the brain to the, the speed of information? I think that's a narrow segment of the transhumanist thinking that perhaps are, yeah, I agree, impatient and, and, and wanting to upload. And I think that, you know, one size does not fit all. The, the, the core of philosophical attributes of transhumanism are human in transition to transform. And part of that transformation is to go beyond our biological limitations. Our main biological limitation is a shelf life. We only have a certain amount of time that we're alive. And the aging process is de, you know, causing us disease. And <laughs> it's a pretty sad thing, actually, that you can only live so far. But there are some people that are impatient, so they want to upload without 
understanding truly what that would be like. My response is yes, I'm one of those impatient people. I'm not going to wait for biological evolution to take you know hundreds of generations to make these changes because I won't be there at that point, or else I'll be cryopreserved and come back and I'll be you know way out of date. So yes, I want to benefit from those things much much sooner. And biological evolution actually it does happen all the time, but in kind of a small ways to produce the big changes we're talking about would take way too long. So yes, I'm one of those impatient people. I want to speed up the process. I don't want to overspeed it up, I and mean, we have to you know be careful in what changes we make and run models and experiment in small ways and integrate those carefully, not just suddenly fly off and let's you know, contextualize this here. Yeah. We have not evolved. Our humans have not evolved for over two hundred thousand years. Well, we okay. have, but not in, not not, in massive not, ways. I mean, we are the same species, a homo sapien, same, sapien of the hominid. We have not evolved in 200,000 years. Yes, we have developed new psychological processes. We may be able to do things slightly differently, but those are those slight things. We're talking about big changes with the transhumanist agenda of extending life well beyond 123 maximum human lifespan to uh, extend agency or consciousness across substrates from biological substrate to computational substrate to chemical substrate to virtual or augmented substrate and substrates we haven't even considered yet. So that means that we would be living as uploads or downloads or crossloads within different environments. And I think that the um, this is evidenced in the gaming industry, the gaming field where players take on characters and they're, they're there. They are, when you watch gamers playing, they're really in that game and, and that's them as as that character in the game. There are certain issues psychologically that, that can occur from that. We don't need to go into that, but people can take on identities that are not themselves. But yes, uploading is great. We just don't have the technology now. So when, if you talk to the, some people say, I want this to happen right now, you know, technology is advancing, exponential this, exponential that, and I'm still human and I'm, you know, I'm aging and we don't have any cure for it right now. What am I going to do? Well, hold on. Let's not upload too fast because to do that is going to take a hell of a lot more processing power than we have right now and better programming tools, better programming software. Until then, the best thing is cryonics. I mean, I want to upload too, but I want to crossload and download and live in numerous environments with numerous um, bodies and identities and multiple cells, etc. as long as they're not fractured. But I would not want to do it too soon if the technology is not ready yet. Of course, evolution isn't one thing. It's happening to millions of different species at different rates. Mm-hmm. And we have a big problem right now and we're having you know, resistance to antibacterial treatments because bacteria evolve much faster than we do. I mean, that is actually one thing. I, I think most things people panic about really aren't that big a deal. That one actually really does concern me. Unfortunately, there is some work on that. So it's not really good enough to say, oh, we'll just wait till we evolve resistance because like, we could have lost 90% of the species at that point. So learning how to accelerate the, you know, the uh, improvements to our immune system seems to be pretty important. If we make a collective decision to change ourselves in a certain way, shape or form, what we're going to end up doing is homogenizing the human species. I wonder if there's a misunderstanding of evolution. It's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the mutant. And if we get rid of all the mutants, then are we going to be exposing ourselves to one singular bacterial infection that would wipe us all out? Because we all have these hyper-efficient uh, bodies and hyper-efficient systems, but it only takes one thing to knock out everybody with that same uh, 
uh, genetic similarity. Well, it's funny because now you're kind of thinking the very opposite of what we were just talking about. We were talking about how morphological freedom basically, uh, you know, you were kind of worrying about the other extreme that we might be too radically different from each other, but now we're worried about, you know, people being homogenized, which is probably the more common objection, mechanization, homogenization, and those are valid concerns. But I think there'll be certain things that just are, are obviously good things to have. Like it's a good thing that we have antibiotics right now. They're just losing their effectiveness. It's a good thing we have antiviral agents. It's a good thing we have ways of, of killing bugs in hospitals. So I don't think we worry about those, but there will be certain changes that I don't think everybody will do the same thing anyway, because just try, just try and get everybody to do the same thing. They're not going to. We're even going to have some people who won't make any changes, who refuse to. They'll say, no, I just want to be human. And you know, I came, kind of came up with this amusing term for this, just like we have the Amish who, uh, and there isn't just one Amish group, but they, they choose a level of technology they find acceptable. So some of them allow mobile phones out on the field, for instance, but not inside the house because it takes away from the group. But they set, you know, they set the limits there. And there may be people who will set the limits at being human. Okay, we're allowed we'll these kinds of surgeries and this kind of you know, cancer treatment, but we're not going to have any kind of maximum life extension increase or changes to my brain. And they should be free to do that. And they may form their own humanish communities at some point. <laughs> if they have a hard time communicating with us, uh, it, it, they should be free to do so. It, 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 the problem is, and it's, it's one of the critiques of transhumanism is, is it too individualist and individual centric? It's, it's my life that I want to extend. It's me, me, me. I want to change something. I want to adapt something. I want to upgrade something rather than thinking about humanity as a collective. When we get into those discussions of my morphological freedom versus your morphological freedom, the critique or the, one of the large critiques of transhumanism is they're too self-focused. I used to think that maybe transhumanists are selfish. Maybe it's wrong to want to live longer. And when people interviewing over the years, especially in the 1990s, saying, why do you want to live longer? Why are you so important? Why is your life so valuable? You know, that you think you should live longer. The older supposed to die and make way for the young. And I've given that considerable thought. And finally, I had an epiphany. I never knew how to answer that articulately. I'd always stumble around uh, with it until I was flying on an airplane one one day, and I woke up, paid attention to the flight attendant. Everyone's usually not paying attention. And the flight attendant was going through their, their dance and said, if there's a problem with air, oxygen, down from the top will come this oxygen thing. Now, put it on yourself first. Make sure you put it on yourself first, and then turn to the person sitting next to you, whether it's a child or an elderly person or someone who's help, and then help them, but put it on yourself first. And I take that as a safety measure. Unless we help ourselves first, improve our humaneness, our humanity, our level of understanding, our own personal growth, our yeah, level of knowledge, understanding, critical thinking, problem-solving skills, etc. We cannot help others. So, no, it is not selfish. It's a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it can be both. I mean, if you, if you're selfish <laughs> in the kind of a neutral sense of being, you know, attention to yourself first, that's a great analogy, really, because unless you take care of yourself first, you can't really help other people. But you can do both at once. And my big concern is I don't want to build into morphological freedom, for instance, some kind of positive right to have these treatments because then you can get government involved deciding what kind of modifications you can make. That's why I think it's important to be individualistic because... Otherwise, you're going to end up with, now we've used the word eugenics, unfortunately, it has all these horrible connotations because it, there's nothing inherently wrong. It just means good genes, but it's been associated with policies of central control who central authorities decide who you should be. So I make no apology for it being 
you know, individualistic in that sense. But I think it's kind of a false dichotomy. We can have individuals making those choices uh, as long as we have the right kind of social economic system within reasonable bounds. That should benefit everybody. I mean, it, it should be a cliche by now, but, you know, how many people had these things, you know, 30 years ago? It used to be just a few executives carrying a big briefcase, and now people in, you know, in very poor areas have cell phones. If it wasn't for the rich people having those first, everybody else wouldn't have them first. So they're kind of first adopters. They actually take more risks, I suppose. And I think we actually are seeing the time between first adoption and widespread adoption shrinking. And, you know, especially if raised right, that's going to be even faster. So I really make no apology for that. I think, first of all, it's not that I'm more important than anyone else. It's that I can make my own choices. I'm not going to make your choices for you. Hopefully I can set a decent example. But I think by developing these and, and talking about them, making them available, other people are more likely then to benefit from them. You know, you, you asked in, in the beginning about the history of transhumanism and how it arrived and, and where the term stems from and what it was like in the early days. I'd like to focus on that if we could, because it's really interesting from the 1980s, the changes that took place from the 1980s before the worldview was developed developed truly. The term transhuman was out there in the marketplace. It had been a term used by F.M. Esfandiari, myself. Um, let's see, Ettinger may have used it. Of course, Huxley used it. Damien Broderick used it um, in different ways. But it wasn't until the late 1980s that the philosophy was was written by Max and therefore became a worldview. But how did it become a worldview? What was the history of that? And that's something that is so discarded in not only in journalistic um, narratives, but in many academic books and papers and um, documentaries on transhumanism. And I think one thing that would be lovely and, and so important for you to do with your project is to set that straight and to get that history clear from the two pioneers who are still with us today. The third one is in cryonics, so he isn't here. That's Esfandiari. But from the 1980s, I remember I went to FN's classes. Um, he was a very dear friend. And he said specifically, he did not want a movement. He had created the Upwingers movement early on in the 1970s, but FM was adamant about not making it a movement. He had, didn't want to do a movement, but he was a bit of a staunch individualist guru, someone who thought everyone should emanate his view of what the transhuman was. And I, I had an extreme difference of opinion. I think you be your transhuman, I'll be mine as long as, as we value life. A very important root of that, I sometimes, when I try to explain transhumanism, I sometimes say you can pass that as trans-humanism uh -huh. or as transhuman-ism, which stresses two different aspects. The trans-humanism one ties into the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment roots of transhumanist thinking, which stressed reason, progress, even if there is, whether there's a God or not, understanding that it's up to us to improve the, our lives. And it really, you know, transhumanism has grown out of that in that sense, that it has the same kind of basic goals, but more radical. So I think that's important to note from a philosopher's point of view. But in terms of the, you know, of the culture of the time, it's hard to say. I think it's because, because we had some success in space until, of course, we, because it was political, had all stopped for a long time until more recently, because new biological tools were being developed, because computers, personal computers started appearing and people started talking on internet forums including our very early one, um, all these new ideas 
kind of started bubbling to the surface and people started connecting them in ways they never really had. And that was one reason I started Extra Ma- Magazine is because I had no one really to talk to about these ideas. And I would have people call me from the middle of nowhere saying, oh, thank goodness, I just I read an underground publication review of your, your magazine and I got it. And thank goodness other people actually think this way. So I think it was just all these different ideas of space and even like blockchain stuff early on and robotics and AI and life extension. And people connecting and actually starting to see how those affected one another. And that obviously leads into a a bigger worldview. And what's so interesting there, too, is that, and this was in the early 90s, and through Extra P, which was the first transhumanist organization, it was a 501c3 nonprofit that Max started with a colleague of his. And eventually I became president of it for, I guess, maybe four years. But Max ran it pretty much solely and put on those amazing conferences in Silicon Valley. But the speakers at the conferences are the people that everyone wants to know about them now. Those speakers, um, we had uh, Eric Drexler, father of nanotechnology, who is one of our colleagues and friends and, and members of XP Institute. Um, Marvin Minsky, father of artificial intelligence, was Hans Marvick, Hans well. Marvick of Robots, Kurtzwell, um, Greg Fay, Gregory Stock. I mean, the, the list, Martin Rothblatt, the list goes on and on. The early thinkers, and it's, it wasn't just the, we didn't have the term entrepreneur then, but it's the original thought makers of the sciences and technologies that are now in the marketplace today that are being used, robotics, AI, nanotechnology, blockchain, Bitcoin, all these ideas were originated through those individuals who happened to get together. It's kind of like happenstance in a way. It was quite wonderful. And I think another part of it was uh, you know, kind of the, the rising of digital culture generally. So Wired Magazine started in whatever year that was. But I remember in the very second issue of Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly did a little review of Extra B Magazine, which of course got us a flood of inquiries. And then they did a cover feature on us not too long after that. From uh, 1994, it would have been the mm-hmm. first conference. Yeah. So I think Wired Magazine sort of reflected a new culture of, it's a mixture of elements of sort of cyber culture, some very critical, some very optimistic. And that was obviously closely connected to, to us. So, you know, we had parties at, at Wired Magazine and knew a lot of those people. So, yeah, it's, it's part of the, the zeitgeist to use the, you know, yes, the, the And and Kevin Kelly went on to uh, work with Quantified Self, which was a great project. And looking at the TED conferences, uh, Chris Anderson, it was, I guess it was more like a Silicon Valley, Northern, Southern California, partly film industry where I was located. And then the academic crowd where Max was located with the Silicon Valley where Extropy flourished in. And then all the, that was the, the nexus, that whole California with the link to New York City, of course, as well. And London, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, but it was never about being selfish. It was about be, having community and communicating and solving problems. How could we use these technologies to further the transhumanist agenda, life extension, mitigate disease, help people anywhere, anytime live a better life? That idea of perfection, again, was never on our, our in our thinking modality at all. It was more about going out into space, interplanetary future of, of things, and looking at automation and robotics and prosthetics. And in fact, an example of how far things have come, since I designed Primo Post Human, that was 1996, think of how far robotics has come since then with narrow AI and haptic systems and neural interface. You can have someone with legs that can walk and run and be in the 
the Olympics. How incredible is that? Or pick up a cup and feel the heat or coolness of that cup. This is amazing. But the problem was at the time, the stuff that you guys were talking about was considered vaporware. Oh, yes. I mean, how did you deal with the detractors who went, oh, this oh. is this is very nice as a philosophy, <gasps> as an idea. Horrible. Like maybe some of this stuff will happen. Maybe not. Cried a lot. Cried a lot. Oh, man. I remember I when, <laughs> um, when we were on the cover of LA Magazine, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I was so excited. And then the journalist, I was giving a talk at MGM. The journalist who was interviewing me for it came to MGM, you know, film studio where I was giving a talk on the future. And the astronaut, Buzz Aldrin, was there. And, and we were giving a talk about the future of the human and why we needed, you know, stronger, more durable, lasting bodies, etc. And Prima Post Human originally was my naked body. And it was a point and click website. So you'd go to my naked body. I didn't show, I didn't show tits and ass too much, just a little bit, enough to be sexy. But you point and click around my brain to, to see augmented to my, you know, meta brain, uh, cognition, memory the skin so I could change the color of my skin, the internal organs, replacement. And it was more athletic than anything since I am more athletic than, than trying to be a, a playboy mate. But that journalist lied in the magazine LA Weekly and said I was passing around naked pictures of myself. I was horrified by that. So sometimes you don't expect a project that you do to have legs. That really makes a big difference. I want to talk a little bit about being a female transhumanist in the mid-80s. It's something that you, you've shared with me before, but yes. it was a difficult environment oh. to be in from what you were describing. Yes. For transhumanism, the other critique is it's a lot of white male guys talking about potentially what and, they're going to do with themselves and, in the future. God, I love them. I gotta love you both, everyone. Yes, it was tough. Uh-huh. Number one, I was in an artist, uh, something I do not call myself today. I don't get jobs being an artist. So I'm a strategic designer, theoretician, academic. Um, Working out, having, um, you know, a body that I could show off. Um, Being in the film industry, uh, being within the Telluride film crowd that I was in, having dated Warren Beatty and having been within that sector, it was really hard to to be accepted within this high-level intellectual domain of all these incredible, talented philosophers, scientists, technologists. I was um, pretty much ignored except by Max and FM Esfandiari. And it's true, it was very hard. Women were not at these meetings. Women were not there. It wasn't the norm. And it was very difficult to, since then, of course, I've gotten two masters and a PhD, and now I cannot talk to anyone about software programming and AI and nano, but... Back then, it, it, it was hard. Uh-huh. But I have to blame myself. I take full responsibility. I have no idea why I got an undergraduate degree in painting. <laughs> That's like getting a, a degree today in philosophy. Philosophy, yeah. <laughs> let's not mention that. Yeah, a couple of things about that. It is actually it's really fascinating to think about the early days. And exactly, you know, I, I talk to people about these ideas and they just kind of think, well, this is, just, this is just nuts. This is just pure science fiction. And it's been fascinating to see how that's changed since we you know, started actually being student to the conferences and the humanity plus and nowadays it's not that science fiction it's oh my goodness that's going to happen what should we do about that does that mean the AIs are going to take control or we can now they take it very seriously and they're arguing about the, the outcome not about whether it's possible so that's been a huge change the problem is 
these ideas only receive a certain degree of traction when they're through the lens of an individual who has the financial or business means. So Elon Musk and simulation theory, no one even knew about simulation theory and what uh, Bostrom was writing about that until suddenly Elon Elon Musk talks about it. Opens the Overton window, makes a statement in in a public forum and suddenly the press go absolutely wild with his Neuralink project and then what Brian Johnson is doing. The, the yes. individuals who've, who've made their money from other means, whether it's entrepreneurship or it's some form of a web-based company, now have a certain degree of disposable finance. Ray Kurzweil, to, technological singularity, which came from Werner Vinge, a mathematician and science fiction writer. Like Jay yeah. Good before that. Jay yeah. Good before that. And of course, right. Google doing the Calico project, the kind of life Google extension company. Calico project. Yeah. I mean, in what way are both of you as the pioneers of these ideas being brought to the table with these discussions? Because all of the ethical implications or the cultural and social implications that they're dealing with right now as they're building these companies are things that you guys have dealt with the last 20 years. And we've thought about it and talked about it and written about it and debated about it. And it's been part of our conversation, the transhumanist conversation, whether it's the, from Extremity Institute to the World Transhumanist Association and Humanity Plus, the, the transition of the development out of bringing people together for conferences. It has been so deeply argued, debated, discussed, but we must be included. It would be nice to get more, you know, be called on more often to advise, but there are some interesting things that do happen. We were actually in New York last time, but one maybe for this gaming conference, which yes. is kind of fascinating because it's a very, was it DSX? DSX, yes. Yeah, which is, which is mm-hmm. uh, but the interesting thing was that the conference was taking this very seriously. They had people coming and demonstrating, you know, prosthetics, just talking about the philosophy and trying to develop rules for this world on a very serious level. So that was interesting. That was so a gaming So the gaming company. industry is looking at this, the gaming industry has actually taken a lot of the transhumanist writing and ideas and put it within games, but not at the level that could be very beneficial beneficial. And I think another area is with what Peter Demandis is doing with the X Prize. He's looking at abundance for all, but that idea generated from Eric Drexler in his book, his PhD dissertation, Engines of Creation from MIT. What I'm intending to do is is to um, really focus more and be more like like you and, and Alex Plokos and, and others. And as executive director of Humanity Plus, I'm really going to work very hard at looking at morphological freedom, the proactionary principle, looking at legislation and governance on an international level, not just the United States, but throughout the world. It's very important that people understand no matter what particular political agenda that is in control or not, or religious view that's in control, it's happening. What it means to be human is on the tip of everyone tongue and uh, something that we have thought about for 30, 40 years, uh, looking at what the future scenarios could possibly be. And there are so many different alternative futures. Certainly no one has the answer to any one future, but um, many of the comments that you've brought up and the questions that you've asked are certainly pertinent to this larger discussion. I personally don't have a whole lot of time to go out there advising people anyway, even if I'm asked, because I'm, I'm running the Alcohol Life Extension Foundation, which is the world's leading cryonics organization. And that's very much a full-time job right now. But occasionally you have to get away and you know, do some other things to, to keep perspective. But I just kind of take, take a little bit of a step back in the sense of when you were talking about whether transhumanist thinking early or now is kind of too individualistic or too selfish. Even in the early 
early days, things we discussed in X-Re Magazine and the online forums, a lot of that wasn't just about getting bigger, faster, stronger. It was about how do we redesign societies for the better? You know, we're only now starting to read about smart contracts, but Mark Miller and Nick Zabel were writing about that a long time ago in X-Re Magazine. How can we actually use technology in combination with new social structures to everybody's benefit? And it's so still timely always- today because those are, are structures and blockchain is looking at this. Where can blockchain go in so many different areas where it's becoming a cliche? Those levels are um, conduits of information that help with understanding the different scenarios and playing out strategies, especially with encryption and coding, where this is so crucial today, how to protect yourself, how to protect your identity. My challenge with transhumanism, the movement, is it can be a lot of individuals sitting online sort of advocating their futures in a very science fiction way on blogs and messaging boards, and it just doesn't feel very useful. (laughs) There's a lot of interest and a lot of excitement around transhumanism, but those getting excited aren't always necessarily the best advocates for transhumanism. Right, yeah, not always, but we have to realize also a lot of those people, like in the early forums, uh, online forums, after a while they got off the forums and they started working on robotics or genetic engineering and so they got busy doing stuff so there's going to be different people who first of all it's new to them so that you know they're going to get excited maybe overexcited occasionally but then that drives them to be interested in okay how do i get involved in biohacking or in blockchain or in life extension so i think there's room for, for everything and you know because I'm, I'm spending most of my time doing something very practical that actually might allow me to live past my natural lifespan so i'm busy doing practical stuff but there's i think it's very important there is actually an academic movement as well because it's needed you know we've got all this Honestly, I don't want to go into tirade, but a lot of nonsense at universities uh, that needs to be postmodernist nonsense, postmodernist, <laughs> and a lot of kind of you know studies. I think they could do with some transhumanist studies because it would tie together a number of topics in a kind of a, a a good way, a very helpful way, teaching critical thinking and ways of thinking about the future more effectively. That would be, I think, a valuable thing. So it's important to maintain that, but that doesn't mean people shouldn't be working on projects. They, they definitely should, and more and more so they are. And doing what I would like to see is more prominent people who are actually doing stuff say. Well, yeah, of course I'm a transhumanist and just be kind of like a trivial thing. Just like, you know, in the 18th century, someone would say, yeah, I'm a humanist, but let's talk about the details of, of this. So it should be like <laughs> mentioned as part of the background in a sense. But, but yeah, is there a yeah. problem with the term? No one really knows in the, tw- in the turn of the 21st century, what is it? 21st century transhumanist. Professor Steve Fuller in the UK is, is very comfortable saying that he's a transhumanist only insofar as he's not a posthumanist. Right, <laughs> you yes, know, he yes, sees yes. it as there's transhumanism, there's posthumanism, you got to put your or Kevin Warwick will say I'm a cyborgist because he can't, he, that he's built his career on that. So he can't say he's a transhumanist, but he really is. Stellark, another one. Is he is very much a transhumanist, but he will call himself a transhumanist, and, but and there's an due to his career. to understand career. transhumanism through its uh, relationship with posthumanism. And the, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I've always understand transhumanism is that the human still exists in one form or shape, whether it's frozen, uploaded, extended through changing or manipulating the body. Body, something remains about the 21st century human. Whereas posthumanism, they're a little more laissez-faire. They're like, you know what, if, if we don't survive, if we don't exist, whatever. Okay, well, become- tra- you have to remember that transhuman is a, a human in, in transition evolving. We're still evolving. Although, you know, as I said, 200,000 years, so in that not case, so are much. So all transhumanists? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. No, not consciously. We're all transhuman. Let's say uh-huh. we're all evolving, but the is means your belief system, how you practice your life. A post-human, no one knows what a post-human is going to be. It could be anything. We can speculate on it. 
but to give a, um, um, a codified definition of what a posthuman is, we'd have to say very loosely with some wiggle room that it's, it's after the, the species. But changing a species is a tall order. It gets into the germline. It gets into the you know, evolutionary biology. It gets into all sorts of terminology and ramifications that differentiate species. Yeah, there's, no, there's no sharp line between transhuman and posthuman in my mind, and that's the way I've always presented it. Is really transhumanism is, is the movement towards the posthuman whatever that might be or the many forms it may take. So it's not exclusive of post-human, whatever that means. The trouble is post-humanism as a term, I have no bloody idea what that means because <laughs> in some senses it just means, you know, thinking about being uploaded and being non-biological and uh-huh. it's in the sense it's closest to us, but it also means postmodernism. People in you know, postmodernists use this yes. term. To me, that's a bunch of nonsense for the most part. So there's very different meanings attached to that word to post-humanism. So if someone says they're a post-humanism, I'm going to say, I don't really know what you mean. Can you explain, you know, which, which type of post-humanist are you? But transhumanism is not incompatible with the idea of, of post-human at all. It is the movement towards overcoming human towards limits, it. which has no particular limit. It's, again, it's not ending up in perfection because I don't believe that concept is useful. It's a stupid platonic idea. It's continuous improvement, which is going to take us yeah. to some point where we really are not recognizably human if you define that in terms of our genetic structure and neurological capability. But you mentioned something about, about the 1990s, some of the uh, lack of advocacy for transhuman. And I think our our biggest hindrance was postmodernist academics because most of them were tenured and they were in those departments that were really important for feminist studies with Anne Catherine Hales and Andrew Pickering and Don Ide and Donna Haraway and, and that whole flux of American and European academics. The, the problem there is that's all great what postmodernism did in academics and theoretically. But where it stopped, it didn't understand technology and evidence-based science. It had the those academics as skilled and refined with their rhetoric. They lacked the knowledge and the interest in looking at AI and robotics and automation and nanotechnology, all the different technologies and the exponentiality well, of them. I think them. even more important to me, at least as a philosopher, is it throughout the scientific method and any yeah, sense of objectivity. Yes. Uh, everybody just has their own worldview, which is equally valid, even though somehow they can criticize other people and get angry at them. And I think that's, you know, as I stress the the emphasis on on the humanist tradition, part of that really is that there is truth. It's not like that's necessarily easy to find or any one person knows what that truth is, but there are things that are right and and wrong and we can make mistakes and scientific method is a good way to get towards that. Against that backdrop, what's interesting about you two as individuals is that the last 20 years is been about striving for a degree of legitimacy. Yes. You know, you had folks in the 80s going, oh, look at these two talking about their vaporware <laughs> that may or may not happen. I mean, Max, you you just went, you know what, I'll become the CEO of a, the largest US-based chronics institute. I'll actually build that future. And Natasha, you went back to academia to prove the legitimacy of yes. the sorts of things you Thank were you saying. Thank you for recognizing that. I, I feel legitimate now, not like I, I felt before. And I, I do. I, I I've earned it. I've worked hard. If you guys called yourself science fiction authors in the mid nineties, yeah. you were the equivalent of Bruce Sterling and yes. Pat Cadigan. You you wouldn't go undergo any of the sorts of scrutiny. None of it. And oh, and boy, you you just nailed it there so well. Bruce Sterling, are you serious? Gibson, they could say anything they wanted, and they were valued so highly, especially by academics and postmodernists. And then us. We were like, oh, they're, they're crazy nuts. 
now it's it's important that this time has come around. Yeah, we we sat through it and and struggled through it. It it was a struggle. It was is it was quite a struggle. So now we largely have the legitimacy. Yeah. So the critique has shifted from you know this is crazy impossible stuff to it's oh, you're horrible people who just look out for <laughs> you yourself. Can't win. You're going to destroy the you human guys race. You can't win. Yeah. Uh, so now we're, we're take yeah. a step by step. And I, I I'm still that same person. I believe in sharing knowledge and and helping. It's just a matter of positioning my Myself as a, the world's most known thought leader on the, the what is the future of humanity. That is my goal to be included at that level where I do have the knowledge and I've got the skills to think things through. And I've looked at numerous scenarios and I'm just looking for the best solution, not a political solution, not a moral solution like the bioethicists do with their agenda, which is always so very transparent. That's the credibility I need to put forth myself from my work in the future. I think Max is doing an excellent job as CEO of Alcor. He's certainly... Well, Cryonics is kind of an interesting example of, of how this has changed because, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I typically experienced going to a hospital and, <laughs> and they would go, you want to do what? <laughs> Not in my hospital, you don't. Uh-huh. And now, typically, the response, you know, is quite different. You know, usually they've seen some documentary on this, you know, one of the science channels or something or they've read a bit about it and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know people are cryopreserving organs and corneas and, and you know, all these people walking around who are cryopreserved as embryos and now they take it much more seriously they'll actually listen to us and when we have visitors come to our alcohol and they actually see it's a real place you know many of them come up to me and say well when i first came here i wasn't sure if they're gonna you're gonna freeze my head or or if you're just you know something really weird but they say no this actually makes sense you know i don't i'm not sure if it will work or not but it actually makes sense now and so you know we used to be way out on one end of the spectrum and traditional medicine and science was out there but they've gotten closer to closer together as we're doing low temperature surgery we're cryopreserving many kinds of tissues right now there's natasha's research cryopreserving a worm and then showing it, it maintained its memories. And the Professional Cryobiology Society actually had a clause in its bylaws that basically said, if you associate yourself with cryonics, you're out. You can never publish, you're ruined. They took that out recently. And the leadership is now much more friendly. That's a big change. So, yeah, there are still people who are very antipathetic, generally out of ignorance, because they just really don't know what they're talking about. So... Yeah, usually, hopefully, you can educate them if they're willing to listen, and that uh, that may go away. I think the the biggest issue that we're facing now, what does it mean to be human? And I think that is on the tip of everyone's tongue. What does it mean? What is this going to do to me? What is this? Where am I going to be? Am I going to be left behind? Am I going to be included in the early adopters? There's so many different scenarios, mm-hmm. and those need to be worked out and expressed and educated to the public. So I think that academics is very important here, but it must include STEAM, not just STEM, science, technology technology, engineering, and mathematics. The STEAM bringing in the humanities is so crucial. Where in many of the schools, especially where I teach, the humanities are left out. There's only maybe one course on ethics. This is so important, but everyone needs to think about it just like people need to think about their financial status. How old are you? How old do you want to live? Do you have a 401k? What is your retirement plan? Are you going to your doctor yearly to have your blood drawn to check how much vitamin D you have? What are your hormones, et cetera? And have you been to 23andMe and had your genetics run through? These are responsibilities that we have as people. Protect your own life and set an example. I think in some ways we, we kind of have a, a long-term disadvantage in that transhumanism is all about change. Um, people generally don't like change for the most part, especially when you talk about very radical fundamental changes. It's kind of scary. People get traumatized by too much change at once. Uh, I'm always, I always think of this story I heard you know, from way back when there was still the Soviet Union 
some Soviet citizen managed to get one of those rare visas to come visit the United States and they had to go buy some toothpaste. And they went in there and there were all these different brands of toothpaste and they're just kind of staring at them going, oh my God, what, what do I do? And they were paralyzed by buying a toothpaste, which to us was so used to that choice, it's not a big deal. So we're now adding all these new choices, fundamental choices about changing your cognition and your body and, and all these other things. There are some people who clearly are transhumanists but won't call themselves that. And I think, you know, I think Ray Kurzweil is a great example of that. He's actually explicitly kind of rejected that term, but he so obviously is a transhumanist and I've tried to discuss that with him and he, he clearly is one. But not everybody, that's fine, because not everybody wants to associate themselves with a movement which might have all kinds of different factions, might push the wrong buttons, and if they're focused on a particular project, then I can kind of understand that they wouldn't want to associate themselves. Chris will sign up for chronics. <laughs> That's a very transhumanist thing to do. I think, personally, the reason why he doesn't publicly call himself a transhumanist mm -hmm. is because he doesn't want to be part of someone else's club. Ray Kurzweil is an inventor. He's a brilliant person, a generous person with his creativity and his many talents. And he um, supports Max and I uh, intellectually and emotionally, and he's, he's someone we, we think is extended family. But because it's a philosophical worldview, I think that some people, when they have their own agenda or their own product to sell, may not want to be included into another product that's being sold at this point. Later on, I don't think it's going to make it one hell of a difference. But I, I think as he's selling his singularity as an era and now his exponential economy and the singularity university, all that, it would, I think it would distract a bit from a marketing perspective and perhaps his marketing advisors you know suggested that that he not it's kind of ironic because even though ray doesn't use the label people conflate the idea of transhumanism and the singularity all the time they think if you're a transhumanist you must believe there's going to be a singularity and they say well i don't <laughs> I, I think i know a little bit about transhumanism i'm not a tra i'm not a believer in the singularity uh, but the two are compatible but they're not the same thing although ray won't call himself a transhumanist some people have attached these two terms too closely yeah. together unfortunately yeah to what degree how do you deal with individuals who come to things like transhumanism because they feel so disillusioned about their current state of being in the present that they're looking to the future as something that will hopefully allow them to transcend their reality right now. I think that's an excellent question because if you open up any magazine or any headline, it's about genetic engineering and CRISPR and modifying the body and new treatments for cancer like uh, immunotherapies. And, and then for all these people, these those technologies feel inevitable. Yes. And yet they feel like they have no stake. And the reason why they're coming to you is they go, oh, you, you saw the inevitability of some of these technologies. And is it really happening? Is it is they it just want, like, they want to know if they're being fed snake oil? It's like, OK, now it's here and it's all over the place. So is it really here? And I love that. It makes me feel good. I love it. So I can then uh -huh. differentiate between snake oil. And there's a lot of snake oil out there. There's uh -huh. a lot of pseudoscience out there. And there's a lot of bullshitters out there. And well, a lot of people thought you guys were peddling snake oil. Back I know. In the, it was like, none of this stuff will exist. None of this stuff will come to pass. But we've been very careful. We didn't just sit back like some people do. I think people are asking the question, what are we going to become? What does it mean to be human? Because our biology is being tampered with, and we've associated our biology with a limited lifespan and death. Life and death. You live, you, you, you have certain criteria based on modernism and normal. You know, you get married, you reproduce, you and come out of the closet 
closet or you don't, you change careers or you don't, and then you get old and you feeble and you die. And that's been the structure. That's been the scenario, the narrative, no matter what native or tribe in the world, there's each one has their individual myth or lore or narrative that people have abided by, and that's being rescripted. So what is the meaning? I like to explain that we don't know what it fully means, just like we don't know what it means. What is consciousness? I mean, you know, you have Stuart Hameroff and Chalmers and so many different um, scientists working on what is consciousness. We still don't know. So what does it mean to be human? People are coming to you with these concerns mm-hmm. because they feel disillusion about the present. The obsession of the interest in the future is this an escapism from something that's so terribly terrible that's happening in their own life. Whether it's something they've set up as, I'm going to die eventually, and that's a terrible thing that they obsess over, and they're looking for ways to make them feel... I don't, I don't, so. I don't generally find that, no? uh, especially yeah. in, in the, you know, in, in cryonics, which really brings that into your face, right? Because you've got to think directly about your, your extinction. Yeah, in, in the occasional case, but for the most part, what I find is people who aren't coming because they're clearly terrified of, of dying, because it's like, you know, if you ask me, am I afraid of, of, of being dead? My answer is no, because it won't be like anything. I'll be just, you know, I'll be wink out of existence. What they're afraid of is that they will have no more life and no more experiences, no more opportunity to learn. So I think they're generally driven by more positive aspects. Now, there are people, like you say, who basically just want an answer. They want to treat it like any other, any other ideology, whether it's Marxism or religion or something like that. There are people like that. I think more of those people will just probably bury themselves in science fiction books because then they don't have to really worry about actual choices. They can just watch or read about these futures. So most of the people I come across are actually there because they think, hey, this stuff, some of this stuff might actually work. I have some concerns about it and um, mm. what can I do with it? So I don't think there are people like that, yeah, but I'm not, I don't think they're a majority by far. I agree with Max. I think it's more out of curiosity and concern and wanting an affirmation about the difference between what is viable evidence-based science and ethical technology versus non-ethical technologies and who's really going to be programming the AI and how is that going to integrate with us and what doctors should I trust? What uh, facilities should I trust? Is 23andMe authentic or do they, you know, they, they fake the genetic output? They want to know if the information that's being presented in the news and, the, and, and many of the articles are viable and and I'm very clear. I'm very honest about it. I will tell them who to watch out for. Um, I'm very clear on that because I think we need to know that. I, we're at a point where, come on, we're tired of people telling us stuff that is crap. We need as honest answers. And if I can't give an honest answer, I, will, I have no problem saying I don't know. So is that where you see yourselves within the transhumanist movement? You're essentially Sherpas to help individuals navigate these very complex times, both politically, socially, yes. technologically, scientifically. I mean, what is the work that you now have to do for the next 20 years? Hey, I may, I may have to steal that term, transhumanist Sherpa. I hadn't uh, really thought of that. But yeah, in, in that sense, that's, that's, I see my role certainly as both being a bullshit detector, because there is a lot of bullshit and, and you know, I've got training in critical thinking and so on. So that, that's, that's kind of the filtering part of it, but also to open up people's minds to the possibilities and help them to understand how all these different technologies can cross-connect in new ways and fertilize opportunities they've never really thought of. Because almost all the objections are based around very narrow thinking, like single track projection, like, oh, you can't have people live longer because the world will be overpopulated or something like that, which is immensely frustrating but comes up every time because it's tracking a single change without everything else going on. We have these periods of change in history. Sometimes things stay a lot the same, like during the 
dark ages, things didn't change for a long time. And then periods of change, like when the steam engine came along and things changed quite rapidly. And then, you know, the fifties and sixties, early sixties, kind of boring. And now all these new things are happening, these new technologies, you're hearing about CRISPR and AI and this and that in space. And so maybe that is driving people to actually look at a set of ideas that's actually thought about all this stuff and tries to make sense of it. It's quite interesting about, and I think it's really important to be a BS detector, but I didn't have um, the academic um, high-end Oxford background that Max has. And so I never partook in debates. So I had to learn firsthand the BS detecting, you know, and, and being taken advantage of many times um, and being naive. So it's kind of interesting that I think we work well this, uh, we don't work on this together, but we work well in, in discussing it because I can now almost see the body language and not intuit, but, you know, I get a sense of things and then I'll ask a few questions and then y- you can find out pretty fast if someone knows their stuff. And one problem I have with this whole um, blockchain cliche is the encryption aspect of it and the transparency aspect. Because if we take a look at Wikipedia, it just goes to show that Wikipedia was a great idea for open source and collaborative thinking and and collaborative uh, projects are great. But are we mature enough as humans? Do we have enough consideration and respect for others not to remove someone else's credit and put your bullshit there. And so I think this is very important in this time and age that we are very careful about who's programming the AI, what's happening with the nano assemblers, looking at genetic engineering. Do doctors really know what they're talking about? I mean, if you're going to a dentist to have a nose job, your your doctor's not being honest with you. This is the thing, along with it being an age of uncertainty, I think we have a crisis of expertise. Yeah. Who do you know is really an expert? I mean, it is now, you know, we, we suspected this for a long time, but now there's a clear studies demonstrating that most scientific results can, have not been replicated or cannot be replicated. Most of the stuff in these journals just isn't right. It hasn't, hasn't, been, <laughs> hasn't been backed up. Um, and when you go from, you know, the hard sciences to the social sciences and uh, more abstract disciplines, it's even, even less certain. So you might think, oh, it's the journal of so-and-so studies. I can believe anything that the editor... Well, no, you can't believe that because it gets captured by certain interest groups. They decide who the, who's going to peer review your paper, who's going to be friendly to their point of view. It's getting really tough to know, actually, even, even in, you know, scientific areas, what the truth is and uh, you know one great example of that is nutrition science which we've seen over the last few decades we're now walking around with a population of obese people with diabetes because the government for decades recommended a food pyramid that was extremely heavy on carbs and bread and pasta and now this, people finally people start to say maybe that's not such a good idea even though the government's been pushing this as officials for nutrition science right and I could give you other examples that would probably be controversial but I think that one people are starting to recognize so there's a really big problem of who are the experts and how do you tell and there aren't any easy answers I think we're still we need to find ways of using new technological forms of communication to whether it's reputation systems for the developed or whatever it is how do we actually track people's success rate and honesty and how do we know that you know a journal editor is actually representing the field rather than their own biases. It's a tough problem. Yeah, very big problem. So I think ultimately this is just the beginning of the conversation on really how we navigate our collective future, our individual future. And Natasha Vizamore and Max Moore, thank you for your time. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Thank you to Max and Natasha for sharing their insights into the history of transhumanism. You can find out more by purchasing their book, The Transhumanist Reader, Classical and Contemporary Essays on the Science, Technology and Philosophy of the Human Future, available now. 
If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.